Ink Studs. Uh, my guest this week is Jay Lynch. Uh, Jay is kind of one of the f- underground, I want to say founders, one of the movers. I don't know what the right term it is to say because Bijou was the third underground comic, uh, or maybe it was the second. Me and uh, Shelton published our books at the same time. Okay. Did the it second count? Has Bijou were the second underground comic after Zap. Okay. Um, and Bijou features, uh, I was reading through it yesterday, and pretty much every underground cartoonist, a lot of underground right. cartoonists, a lot of the major guys, um, uh-huh. were in there. It's one of the most, uh, important underground series. As well, um, Jay's main underground series was Narn and Pat, which had two issues, uh, collecting the series. As well, more recently, you can find Jay's work in the, uh, very fine... Post Underground uh, magazine slash scene Mineshaft and from Tomb Books um, there's a pair of books uh, Auto uh, series as well as Mo and Joe um, thanks for joining me today right Jay uh, well good to be here oh a couple other Actually, things uh, go ahead I was say there's a couple other things I forgot you also um, Turned On Cuties I think is something you edited yeah, and in the 60s or 70s. As well as Phoebe and the Pigeon People. I wrote the Phoebe and the Pigeon People comic strip for the Chicago Reader. Gary Whitney was the artist on that. I would do roughs in the beginning, and I'd send him the roughs, and he would draw the thing. And then after that, i just phone it to him. We did 700 Phoebes, and you know, so far 26 publishers have rejected it. You know, about doing a reprint book. But there were three kitchen sink collections of it back in the 80s that mm-hmm. came out. Was that around the same time you put out the Narden Pat collections? Um, after that? I think Narden Pat was like late, later part of the 70s. Okay. And we had a Best of Bijou book that was a paperback. Mm-hmm. A great paperback. The, from Apex, right? No, it was from um, Link's books. It was owned by Rolling Stone at one point. Yes, my apologies. Uh, It's a big book. I like. Oh, that's right. The Apex Treasury is the second half of the second printing of the Bijou book. Yeah. Okay. So I have that edition. That's from Putnam. But you know that's out of print. But you see it on on, you know Abe books and 
places like that for sale. Still relatively cheap. There were a lot of them printed. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of content to it, too. It's kind of amazing going through and just seeing um, a lot of short story works by a lot of folks um, mm -hmm. kind of featured in there. Yeah, uh, Justin Green, uh, Crumb, Skip Williamson. Kim Deitch. Uh, Kim Deitch. Yeah, you name them. You know. Rory Hayes, I think, is in there. Yeah. Um, and that really runs Jay the... Jake Kinney. Bill Griffith? Um, I don't think... Oh, yeah, Bill Griffith is in that book, in the apex half of the book. Oh, okay. We printed him in Bijou number eight, but not before then. Bijou number eight was like a parody of mad comic books mm -hmm. of the 50s. Kurtzman did the cover, and every artist did a parody of every other artist, so... Skip Williamson did Mr. Normal, one Crumb did Part and Matt, and I did the For Schlugener Fuzzy Geek Brothers, you know. We all did each other's characters. That looked like it was probably a lot of fun to do, that particular issue. Yeah. Except for the color separation. <laughs> we had to cut them by hand then. <laughs> that was the uh, the ruby lifts? Uh, with Zipatone on three sheets of acetate that we'd hinge onto the original art. Oh, okay. Um, so that you could put any one over any other one to check for more A patterns. It's like all been replaced by Photoshop, though, the now. You know, it used to take like two days to do a page, and now it takes like an hour. It's quite amazing. I mean, the color. Yeah. Yeah, no, the process, uh, the old processor, because you also would have to have an understanding of color um, doing it too which yeah, I did that whole I colored that whole ish but I, you know we used to Crum had a job doing greeting cards that way and I had a job doing ads for sides of for they, this place would sell sides of beef um, that people would put in their freezers so for a year or so I did a lot of color separations of cows for this uh, beef place. So, you know, the comics were a good chance to use other colors besides yellow, red, and black. Mm -hmm. Get some blue in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, well. I was reading through your work and kind of going through it kind of chronologically and uh, most recent stuff being the, the Mineshaft stuff. And um, I didn't realize uh, the one story in there you did with Ed Piscor, um, you did a bunch, but one of them that I kind of wanted to start out with because of the content of the stories, uh, you and Spiegelman um, doing work for uh, zines, basically, in the early 60s. And yeah. I'm wondering about um, kind of getting into that, and like how old you were at that time. Well, I first met Art when he was 14, and I was 16. We did, uh, well, the way it started was like in 1960 or 58 or 59, whenever um, Kurtzman's magazine Humbug folded, um, the artists all went to Cracked, like Jack Davis was in Cracked, and Elder was even in Cracked for a while. 
Mm-hmm. So we had an, I had an issue of crack that I bought, and there was a letter from a guy named Joe Pilati who published a magazine called Smudge. It was a fanzine, and Pilati was like 14 years old at the time. And me, Art Spiegelman, and Skip Williamson, we didn't know each other then, but we all sent for copies of Smudge, and we all wound up doing cartoons for Smudge, and then Skip did his own fanzine called Squire, and we all did cartoons for that, and Art did one called Blase. And I got in touch with a guy named Don Doler, who did one called Wild, and uh, we all did cartoons for Wild, too. So then, you know, that was like when we were in high school. Then after that, we went to college, and we all worked on college humor magazines, and um, then we worked for places like The Realist magazine and, you know, various pre-hippie alternative culture magazines. Mm-hmm. You know, like lit- the Nexus magazine in San Francisco was like a literary mag, um, and that's what we did between, say, 63 and the advent of underground papers and underground comics between 67 and 68. Um, we all knew each other before the underground comics. Joel Beck was doing his magazines out there and Berkeley and a lot of those guys. You know, Bob Stewart even was doing fanzines in 1955. When oh. the uh, stuff was big. Now, um, were you living in New Jersey at that point when you started? I was living in New Jersey in 1955 when we had the EC Fanatic Club and stuff. But mm-hmm. in 19... Well, when that issue of Crack came out, Paul Lakin was the editor, and he gave Joe Pilates mag a plug in the letter column. Um, that was, I was living in Miami, and Art was living in Rigo Park, New York, uh, and uh, Skip was in Canton, Missouri at the time. And in the 60s, we, when we were in college, we were more mobile, mm-hmm. so we all visited each other. So how old would you have been in that... Um story in the issue of Mineshaft when you were both in New York? Oh, we were, like, I was 15 and I was 17 or something. We were were working in the bus station Mm -hmm. um, because they had these pew-like seats, you know, they were kind of like desks. (laughs) Um, But we were doing stuff for some fanzine and... uh, we worked in the bus station even later. I remember we did a Grace Slick poster in the bus station. But in those days, nobody would be in the bus station at 3 a.m. Yeah. Except yeah. for uh, some less desirable characters. Yeah, but, you know, they were less desirable, but today they would be normal <laughs> <I guess. laughs> so at that point um, doing these zines um, mailing back and forth with other 
like-minded kids. Um, did you have that bug that you wanted to be a cartoonist? Like, this is the direction you wanted to go in? Yeah, I always uh, thought I was a cartoonist. Mm-hmm. Or at least since I saw the first issue of Mad in 1953 or so. Um, I, guess I should tell the bus station story, right? Or do they have to... Buy, they should buy Mineshaft anyway, but <laughs> we were kids and we are in the bus station trying to, you know, drawing on these ditto masters trying to get a fanzine done, which I think was for Joe Pilates magazine. He was in New York then and I guess Art would have taken the train back to Rigo, or the bus back to Rigo Park. No, no, that's not right. I, it must have been me who was going out of town. And then Art would drop the thing off at Pilates when we finished. <coughs> so, it's 3 a.m., and there's nobody in the bus station except me and Art. And we're drawing on the benches, and uh, a insane woman comes in, and... Uh, She's obviously drunk, and she, you know, staggers over to us. Oh, but on the far side of the bus station, there's like a wino who's laying in a puddle of his own juices, all passed out, you know. So we're drawing these things, and I'm thinking, oh, no, the woman's going to come over and bother us. You know, she does. She comes over, and she lifts up her shirt, exposing her breasts, and she says to Art, who's looking at the paper while he's drawing. I'm looking up at her. She says, hey, boy, you got dynamite? And Art says, he points to the wino and he's over, in, you know, 100 yards away, and he says, no, no, that guy over there, he's got the dynamite. <laughs> and she goes over to the wino, you know, and, you know, didn't bother us. So we were able to finish our fanzine page in time. Um, it's, it's, it's neat to, like, kind of get this, like, historical context. Um, just, just uh, about a year ago, another amusing thing happened. Um, Art and I went to see a show of, uh, Jack Smith's work. He's a early experimental filmmaker. And, uh, they had some retro, they had, not his films, but his memorabilia at this uh, museum in Soho. We went to see with Ken Jacobs, who's a experimental film teacher who was one of Art's college teachers that we know. And uh, on the way back, Jacobs brought with him a 3D camera. And we're on the subway, and we can't, you know, the, the only seats Art and I could get are across from Ken and his wife. And Ken and his wife are sitting across from us. And all of a sudden, Ken, his wife, and the woman that we didn't know who was sitting next to them started looking at us and laughing hysterically, and we don't know why. So Ken points over our heads, and we look up, and there's a poster that says something like, I don't know, it's some surreal ad for some consumer product. And Art looks up and he says, oh, yeah, surrealism in advertising. <laughs> And then we continue looking at whatever we were looking at. But they're still laughing, you know. And Ken is pointing up above our heads, and uh, we don't know what they're laughing at. And then 
um, Ken takes out, the 3D camera takes a picture and shows us the picture. And it turns out that above our heads, there's like some metal projection coming out from the wall of the subway upon which is hanging a used condom. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so I don't know. Ken has the picture. I, he didn't send me a copy. It's in 3D, so I couldn't see it anyway. But, you know, someday it'll be on the cover of art. Um, international. What's the, I don't know. What's the big art magazine? Oh, I have it? no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a little touch of old New York. Uh-huh. Um. Yeah, Ed Fisker and I were going to do a book uh, that's just like early stories of underground cartoonists' adventures. Mm-hmm. But um, I couldn't. You know, it turns out that. They're paying like thirty bucks a page, and you know the paper costs more than that. So I never got it. I never. I only did half of it. But it all ran. What we did ran in Mindshift. We did. I don't know. Thir- uh, Sixteen pages of stuff. It's an uh, interesting time for reflection because I know uh, recently, or a couple of years ago at least, Skip Williamson had done all his autobio books. Yeah, Skip did two. Um, uh, Kindle books that are on uh, Amazon for you know like really cheap because they're Kindle books but mm-hmm. uh, yeah one is about his days as in the underground cartooning thing and the other is about how he worked for the various uh, Playboy type magazines including Playboy Playboy and Hustler and all of those uh, they're quite neat I, I read a good chunk of one of them I really liked it. So. Yeah, Skip, Skip's Life should be a movie, you know, like the two cartoonist movies are Harvey P. Carr and Crumb, and, you know, there's not any kung fu action or car chases <laughs> or anything. <laughs> but with Skip, there is, you know. Just the um, years at Playboy enough, or uh, there's probably a couple of movies there. Well, a, he has that Cripple Creek, Colorado thing when he and his wife were kidnapped by lesbian good humor men who were tied up with the mob. What? <laughs> and it's a true, it's a true story, you know. Oh my God, when was that? <laughs> we were all told that he'd been killed, but it was some other guy with a beard who got killed. Uh, it was in 1964 or five. Wow. He showed up at my house. Uh, after we all thought he was dead. And, uh, it's, you know, it's in the book. It's on there. Now, so. you guys knowing each other for so long, um, and it seems so well before even the undergrounds um, jumped up like they did after uh, Crumb put out Zap. Um, I'm wondering, like, what kind of stuff were you doing at that point, like, creatively? I was only doing one panel. Well, I guess Skip and me both were an art. We were doing mainly one-panel gag cartoons. Um, and I was writing for Cracked and Sick. And uh, um, I did stuff for Help magazine. Um, but it wasn't until till the LSD era that, you know, I took acid and I drew 
strips. And I thought, oh, these are, you know, just every panel is as good as a one-panel gag cartoon. They're not thick. But I was seeing things that weren't there, you know. <laughs> I would see in the texture of the paper thinking it would reproduce as cross-hatching. But it, it, at least it got me to do long strips rather than just one-panel things. Are there particular strips that you would say are especially um, acidy? Of mine? Yeah. Uh, yeah, um, well, on such set, and there's one called 1956, and, you know, it's hard to speak of them verbally. <laughs> <laughs> So what was it about... Oh, there, was a, there was a thing where, where before the comics, Art and I, Art, uh, Art came to Chicago and started this leafleting thing. We uh, one night sat up and decided that an interesting way to meet... This is before we even took acid, I think. Um, we thought it would, what we did was we cut the word love out of a dictionary and we drew some surrealist drawing about it, uh, around it, you know. So it was a leaflet. But leaflets were always associated with advertising some of that, you know. And this was just a leaflet with no advertisement for anything, you know. Mm-hmm. Just this weird drawing. We passed them out on the streets in an effort to meet chicks. And um, Art started leafleting, and he uh, he did a lot of leaflets in his early days before the comic thing. He would go to different cities in his travels. He would pass out leaflets of surreal things, not yeah. leaflets advertising anything. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, I think. I saw leaflets reprinted somewhere. Maybe it's in that book. Uh, the comics book? The, the most recent collection of his stuff that he did. Mm-hmm. We just had the uh, the show in Vancouver um, earlier last year or middle last year. It was pretty interesting. Show of Arts. Uh, yeah. The same one that was in, in New York? No. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's a yeah, big show. the one in New York, yeah. That's Garbage Pail Kids and stuff. And you s- did started working on those in the 60s as well, right? Well, Garbage Pail was in the 80s, and oh. in the 60s, Art did Wacky Packs. And oh, okay. Hired me to write jokes for it. He kind of created the series. Um... And it's still they're still doing new ones even today. Mm-hmm. Both garbage pail kids and wacky pants. Is Mark Newgarden still working on them? Mark did it in the eighties, but no, he hasn't worked on it for you know twenty years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, we've run out of smeg uh, out of. Uh, bodily fluid jokes. I'm waiting for them to legalize smegma. That would give, you know, it's a whole new field of plow and the garbage bill kids thing. That was the, the one, one of the few you couldn't do? Uh, right. We associate smegma with the genital area, but I think, you know, girls that have pierced ears turn their piercings inside out and smegma comes out, so... 
Okay. It's safe in that area. <laughs> I guess. It was never an official taboo. I just figured we could never mention it. Although <laughs> <laughs> everything else is fair game. So except smoking and fire and I don't know what. Well, you could probably do smoking back in the '60s. In the '80s, yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> now they can decapitate each other and bleed profusely, but they can't smoke in the garbage bill. No. The violence is fine. For yourself, um, when you saw what Crumb had done with Zap, um, what was that impact like? W was it really impactful? Yeah, uh, Skip and I were doing the Chicago Mirror, which was a, a humor magazine. And it wasn't comics. It was there were some comics, but it was mostly written stuff. And, oh, the poop story. Uh, this is the time at the time that people ate. Every day. There was uh, articles in the press about the hippies were smoking dried out banana peels to get high. And I don't know if this was true or not, but it was a big news story at the time. So we wrote a thing about how uh, hippies in Chicago were smoking dog poop. And uh, the best kind, you know, we told how to cure dog poop. And, you know, the best kind is called Lincoln Park Brown. And, you know, it's left by loving, peace-loving doggies and people who smoke it are called shitheads and you know we went into this whole thing and then I'm selling the humor magazine on the street and this this hippie guy comes up to me and he says oh man thanks for that tip about the dog poop last issue we've been smoking it and it's great I said no no that's satire that's humor you're not supposed to really do that that's you know uh, and he didn't get that so we thought well maybe we're, we don't understand our audience here <laughs> and when Zap came, we just decided to change it into a complete comic book, mm -hmm. and so the mirror became Bijou Funny. Okay. Um, and the that was primarily kind of coordinated by you and Skip and Jay yeah. Kinney. Yeah, Jay Kinney uh, lived in a suburb. And Jack Kenny was only 16 when we did Bijou. We were like in our 20s or early 20s. Mm -hmm. But Kenny subscribed to one of the fanzines that I did stuff for, Cavill, that a guy named Phil Roberts put out. Um, and even as late as 1964, I guess I was doing stuff for his magazine. I'm still doing. I, I was still doing stuff for Joe Pilotti even now. Uh, Joe Pilotti died uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, but he wrote the introduction to Dennis Kitchen's corporate crime comic book. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's always been working on uh, uh, corporate crime type projects. So his latest thing is uh, this Coca-Cola lawsuit where um, uh, the Coca-Cola company murdered a bunch of union 
guys who tried to organize unions in Columbia. So I did a lot of posters uh, for them, the Joe Flotti Divide. I guess it's online at uh, something, killercoke.org. Or if you just do a search for Killer Coke Cola or Killer Coke, it'll probably show up. I so think I've heard about that. Yeah, it was big. It was on the cover of The Nation. I think mm-hmm. I think it's like the Vietnam War of the present generation of college students. It's a big issue trying to get Coke banned from their campuses. Now, you were never really a hippie, I'm presuming. Like, reading your comments, yeah, you seem pretty... My FBI report says um, that I wasn't. I did stuff for The Seed, and I did stuff for the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Sun-Times, the regular Metropolitan Daily Papers at the same time. So when I got my FBI files and under the Freedom of Information Act, it says, you know, he's well, he works for both the hippies and the others, so, you know, therefore he's okay. <laughs> and they give a quote where I said, the duty of a revolutionary is to make a profit. But they didn't get to that parody of the Regis Debray quote, the duty of a revolutionary is not to get caught. So, you know, they didn't really understand. I mean, I'm, you know, I don't like the government, and I didn't much like the, the hippies. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I don't know. Being in Chicago, um, I mean, one of the obvious things about Chicago 60s is, is the 68 convention. Um, did you go around to any of the activities around that at all? <coughs> no, Skip any did. Um, Crum and I were in a hotel. I mean, we w- it wasn't a hotel. It was, I think it was Roosevelt University. They had a, a reading room for students. We watched it from the window of that place, you know, like six stories up from the street. We just viewed it. We didn't go out there and get tear gassed. Mm-hmm. But Skip was out there getting tear gassed. I think Spain was possibly there too, maybe? Yeah, I think he was, but we didn't know he was there. <laughs> so we didn't see him during that event. Crum, you know, Crum was there, but he... I think the reason he came was that the, the Yippies were giving free bus rides to Chicago. They were protesters, but I don't think he protested much. So did you move to Chicago to go to school, or...? Um, I moved to Chicago because Playboy was there, and oh, I thought okay. I could get work. I guess that's why, but I did go to school when I got to Chicago. I went to the Roosevelt University, and I went to the Art Institute. And Kurtzman was in Chicago at that point, wasn't he? Or am I wrong? Um, he never, well, he just come in to work on Playboy stuff, but he, okay. he never lived here. He just stayed at hotels or Hefner's place. Um, well, see, I, I was doing cartoons in Miami. I did cartoons for this magazine called Frip Magazine, and I never expected to get paid, and I did it for quite a while, and then the guy who was a publisher went bankrupt, 
and he put me on his list of creditors. So I got like $80, which was worth about $5,000 of our money today. <laughs> so I was out of there. <laughs> so I came to Chicago. I stayed with my uncle in a suburb for six months, and then I moved to the city. Was it uh, Chicago in the 60s, was it pretty different um, from both San Francisco and New York? Yeah, it was kind of like, um, I think Krem says it was kind of like Bulgaria. <laughs> pretty depressing. But, you know, you could go to, like I once went to a printer in 1980, and on the floor was stuff that he'd printed in the 1940s. He hadn't cleaned it for 20 or 30 years. And you could still get old stuff. Mm. <clears throat> but when I left Chicago, everything was just like every other city. It was just Starbucks and, you know, um, you know, just like uh, what 42nd Street is in New York now, just uh, the I same as every place else. McDonald's, yeah. So, when you started uh, Bijou Study, uh, Bijou Funnies with your friends, um, your colleagues, did you um, you write a little bit in one of the strips about kind of uh, the one of the ones you did with Ed Piscor about kind of planning? the printing and the distribution, I'm wondering about the learning curve of getting into in doing comics and kind of trying to find a way of getting <coughs> those books out there into the head shops. Yeah, distribution was the problem, the only real problem. Well, you know, our, there were only three comics. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and we distributed in the head shops and we sold them to the head shops wholesale rather than put them out on consignment. My consignment was in the 60s was something that had seen its day. Like, it existed in the 30s, and it was originally devised because during the Depression, individual newsstand dealers didn't have the money to buy the books wholesale. So the publishers would give them the books on credit, and they would tear off the covers and return them to the publishers to prove that they didn't sell those books and destroy mm -hmm. the guts. Um, uh, so we didn't use that model. We used the model of rolling papers. You know, they would just be sold wholesale to the distributors. And uh, we were in head shops. We weren't on newsstands or in bookstores. And it just evolved to the point where the printment developed a system for distribution, and then we went with the printment. And we were far away from the printment. We were, the printment was in in San Francisco, and we were in Chicago, so we'd be the last guys to get paid. And then I met Dennis Kitchen, who had done the first issue of Moms, and me and Crum went up to Milwaukee. And Dennis seemed to have a better system of distribution than we did. And so we let Dennis distribute Bijou, and Crumb gave him mom, or, uh, what was it? 
uh, he gave him one of his early comic titles, Hardland or something like that, something rural mm-hmm. was the title. And Dennis distributed that and made a lot of money because it was from book. And, um, his company grew and a Midwestern distribution system came into effect, you know, and it just grew from there. I had problems distributing myself because the type of places that carried it would go out of business like, you know, two weeks after I gave them the books and we wouldn't get paid. Like, we let some places have credit, but they all disappeared from sight. So we were losing dough on that. Uh, And Dennis eventually published Bijou for you guys at some point? Or were so well, we co-published we co- publish it. I, I made okay. the negatives in Chicago, and Dennis uh, paid the printer in Milwaukee. Okay. Now, what did you have in mind uh, doing Bijou? Um, just, like... Well, we, we didn't want to... When we were kids, we wanted to draw comics, but when we grew up, they had the good comics code, and we didn't especially want to do Archie or Mm -hmm. code-approved type comics. We wanted to, (coughs) to, you know, speak to our peers, so we had to defy the code. And our books were in black and white, and they cost 50 cents, so they weren't actually comics, and because we weren't distributed by existing distribution systems, we couldn't be blacklisted because we weren't code books. So we just did it without the code. We just ignored the fact that there was a code, and it was a time in history when you could do that, I guess, you know. Even the regular newsstand magazines were a lot more risque than they are today in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more, a lot more filth then, maybe. Well, no, I mean, like, Playboy would have fully exposed breasts on the cover then, but they couldn't do that now. Yeah. I guess just things were able to be a lot more underground. Not that, you know, I want to print, you know, sexual stuff per se, but I do think that there should be a a free press, you know, so that anything that anybody might think should be printable. One of the ideas I get from, from talking to underground folks is just the importance of uh, not having censorship, of being able to, like go through with your ideas, I guess. Yeah. And the whole sex thing used to be an excuse for political censorship. Like once when Playboy ran in the same issue, extreme criticism of Mayor Daley in Chicago, and also ran uh, naked pictures of Jane Mansfield, they were busted for the Jane Mansfield pics. Mm-hmm. But the real reason was because of the Daley stuff, you know? No, when, you, when you did porn comics, you'd use a pseudonym, uh, Ray Finch. Yeah. And, and I'm and I'm really curious about 
that choice? Is it just kind of playfulness, or was it specifically like separating your work? I don't think we, you know, there was nothing in Turned on Cuties that was any more bustable than stuff that was in Bijou. Mm -hmm. But we're just kind of mocking uh, that type of magazine. Um, so I used a fake name, but I didn't really have to. I just did a, you know, Crumb did that too, and Snatch used a lot of fake names. Okay. I haven't gotten copies of Snatch yet. I, I did stuff for like Rogue and, not Rogue, but Dude and Gent and Nugget magazines. At the same time, I was doing stuff for Playboy, so okay. I used the fake name on those. I used the name Phil Spays. <laughs> Just so there wouldn't be any, you know, people who came to those magazines wanting to get me when really the only way they could get me was in Playboy. There's, but everybody I guess, did this. I guess part of that is also so Playboy's not going, you're doing comics for them. You're supposed to be doing comics for me. Yeah, thing. but, you know, I have a right to be schizophrenic. If I want to be Phil Spays, I'll be Phil Spays, you know. <laughs> I spent the money as false days, you know, I didn't buy anything for me. Um, but yeah, a lot of people use, uh, in Cracked, uh, Bill Ward, who was doing bondage stuff, used the name McCartney. Mm -hmm. Just so that if the parents had the bondage stuff, they wouldn't get upset that the kids were reading Cracked by the same guy. I don't know. I don't know why. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the um, the influences on Nard and Pat of because um, there's a little bit of like an old timiness to it. Yeah, it's kind of like the Gumps or Mutton Jeff or the Short Guy, Tall Guy, Bullwinkle, Rocky thing. Mm -hmm. um, I knew a guy named Nard who was like a arch conservative. A guy named Pat, who was a flaming liberal, and they'd argue, and neither one listened to what the other one was saying, and it was interesting. You know, so I kind of did it. The first comics just were kind of based on those two, and then later it became more based on me and my wife at the time and our um, discussions. One of the things I noticed about the strip is. Um kind of reading the Bijou in one sitting is how the style kind of develops out of it, like your cartooning style, and I'm interested about like the, the style development that you had at that time. Yeah, it gets more obsessive. Like in the beginning, I did it fast because I was used to doing one final gag cartoons, mm -hmm. so I didn't do a lot of cross-hatching or anything. And then later it gets, you know, real tight because I, I just stopped taking acid and got back to cross-hatching. You also stopped smoking marijuana. Um, oh, actually, I never took illegal acid. So LSD was legal up until 1966. Oh, okay. And I don't think I smoked marijuana after people knew what it was. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't smoke marijuana during the hippie days. It was all before that. 
I guess it's part of it because you're maybe a little bit older than most of the hippies, and it just was... No, I was just, just I was just upset by the... Like, like the whole hippie thing started out more as an anarchic thing than a political thing. Mm-hmm. And so, like, um, legalized marijuana became like, you know, the seeking permission from an authority figure to make marijuana legal. Whereas if they just all smoke marijuana, marijuana will be eventually legal, as we see today, mm-hmm. you know, in some states. Um, it's just the idea of asking the government for permission, you know, is just uh, a wrong move, you know. You so when that when it when it started to be legalized pot, I, I gave up. I didn't smoke pot much after that. No, a challenge to the authorities. If you had pot in your house, they could seize all your goods. Ugh. That's terrible. Um, America. Well, I still can. Yeah. Now, you were talking earlier about um, doing some strips in LSD, and one in particular was the Um Tut Sut. And I'm really fascinated with that one because you also, I think, in a strip have Pat saying that phrase. And I wonder, what was it about that that kind of stuck to you? Um, yeah. Well, when I was a kid, we saw this Victor Mature movie. I think it was The Thief of Baghdad, where all these uh, Persian guys greet each other by saying, um, tut, um, it's actually A U M T A H T S A U T. Um, sat, tut. But we thought it was um, tut, sat. So when we were kids, we would just, instead of saying hello to each other, we'd say, um, tut, sat. Because we all saw that Victor Mature movie. Um, and then it became, it became my thought that all these hippie guys were using, um, you know, contemplating locust blossoms. Instead of that, they should be contemplating Winston cigarette packaging, you know, because we live in a different culture. So one such that was a westernization of the, uh, the, uh, Persian mantra. But I did, I did that comic, Um Tut Sut and Bijou Funnies, in 1968. Mm-hmm. And this year, uh, a couple of years ago, the Boogers, which is a children's band, a band for kids. They're called the World's Most Dangerous Kids Band. And they play like Ramones kind of music for kids. Um, Studies have found that children respond best to the Ramones. <laughs> Not uh, especially uh, Barney the Dinosaur or, you know, the, the, the things that are marketed as kids' music. So the Ramones cleaned up my original Untouched poem and set it to music, which is it's available on Amazon for 99 cents. The, the Boogers version of Um Tut Sut. It's the only official version. Some other places, uh, a, a band called French TV did some knockoff version of it that I don't know what it is. There's no words and it doesn't. It sounds like some Frank Zappa composition or something, but not as good. 
But I don't know. I don't know. The Boogers is the only official recording of them that's done. You use it as theme music. It's on the web for free somewhere. There we go. We'll play it at the beginning of this. Uh-huh. Does that sound good? Yeah. It's uh, only... Uh, it's less than a minute in length. We, I thought, you know, Paul Anka made his money because he wrote the theme for The Tonight Show every time they'd use it there to play, pay him. So um, I thought if, you know, if The Tonight Show picks up Boom Tucks out as their theme song, maybe I could get some dough. But you can play it for free, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Maybe I'll be as big as The Tonight Show. Yeah. Probably not. That's yeah. okay. Um, the, the length of it is is short for just that purpose, you know. Um. Now, talking about Bijou Funnies, um, and the one issue we were talking about earlier, the kind of mad parody issue, uh, issue eight, um, mm-hmm. where all the cartoonists would do each other's strips, uh, I- I'm really interested in how that comic developed and, like, how you guys decided to split up the duties and who did whose strip. <coughs> Um, well, the, the way that it all, you know, the, we, we never had the money to pay for what we really, I really wanted, you know, the, the first book that actually was edited was Arcade. Everything before that, the artists would get a percentage of the profits, and there was no big dough up front to make them bend to our wills as editors, you know. So uh, the original thing was I just asked uh, eight or ten artists to do parodies of other artists, and they did. And, you know, in the style of Mad. So in the beginning, I, I the stuff is printed in the order of how well they followed the directions. So the first stories in the book are the ones that were done closest to what they were supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And then toward the end, they're not so much parodies as they are artists drawing in the exact style, you know, of another cartoonist without it really being so much of a parody um, as in the manner that Mad would do a parody. So it's it's good, you know, but uh, there's a there's definite order to the way things are presented from front to back of the book. The things in the front are the best, and as they go toward the end, they become less of a parody and more of a just uh, one artist doing another artist's style. And I, think they- I, I wrote. The one that I did, the Geek Brothers, and I wrote the one that Pat Daly did, which is a Von Bodie parody. And mm-hmm. I wrote the back cover, the Ralph Reister. But aside from that, everybody wrote their own things. I think the oddest one for me was the uh, Dennis Kitchen doing Kim Deitch. No, Bill Griffith did Kim Deitch. Oh, Bill did. Oh, okay. And. Dennis Kitchen did Dan Klein's Hungry Chuck Biscuits. Oh, okay. Well, the 
the Bill Griffith one then. With the Bill did thing. Kim and Kim did Bill. Okay. Uh, did you assign or did they kind of say, I want to do your strip, I want to do that person's strip? I think each artist chose who they wanted to parody. Mm -hmm. um, and then Crumb parodied you, I think it was, right? Right. Dip Williamson parodied Crumb. And I parodied Shelton. Shelton's not in that issue of Bijou, though. Um, so it's not like one guy parodied another guy who parodied him. It's just they parodied whoever they chose to parody. Yeah. Justin Green parodied Esquite Wilson. Um, was and Kurtzman, Kurtzman did the cover. Was he parodying himself for the cover or something? Or, uh, well, he was just doing a cover pretending like what would happen if this were mad and it was published now. Okay. Mad Comics, I mean. Was it exciting for you guys? I know you'd like been some of you developed friendships with Kurtzman at that point, but still to have him doing a cover for one of your comics. Oh yeah, uh, Kurtzman would have you know Kurtzman had to make a living. Like you know, I'd say, well, why don't you do this? And his excuse will be, you know, yeah, I'd really like to do this, but I gotta buy the milk for the baby, and you know, I gotta do stuff for Big Doe. Mm -hmm. uh, but he did covers for um, Snarf, Dennis Kitchen's book, and he did uh, cover for Kurtzman Comics, which is one of Dennis Kitchen's books. And I did the color for that. Um, he did a color rough. That was kind of interesting because... Um, kind of sent the color up to Playboy so they would plug the book in the magazine before I got the color up, and I couldn't get the color up back from Playboy. <laughs> they wouldn't give it to me, so I'd have to go there and look at it and make notes, <laughs> and then I'd go home, and then i go back. Um, Curse may be pretty specific with his roughs, too, right? Yeah, he did a... He didn't do the actual color because we used the cheap mm -hmm. method where you do four wash drawings and they're overprinted to make the color, so you don't see the color till it's printed. Um, they don't do that now because you got Photoshop, which in those days human labor was cheaper than technology. Like what we had then was something called Cytex. There was an early version of Photoshop that cost like a thousand dollars a page to get something done in it. Jesus. Now people can do it for free on their home computer. You know. well, probably my favorite thing of your Mindchef strips um, is the one where you and Crumb visit Chester Gould. In the right, Ed Pisco agree with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I forgot. I got one thing wrong in there. We, we went to visit Chester Gould, and he um, loved the Crumb sketchbook, and he was, you know, regardless of his content, he really liked it because of the amount of effort that Crumb put into the drawings. So he, he's pointing to the corrupt costume, and he says, 
Uh, I wish I could do this today, but all I get is worms, you know, because they printed newspapers in letterpress then, and uh, the printing plates would bleed around fine lines, and you would get, not get a fine line. And that's what he was meaning by worms. But at one point, he looked out the window, and there was this... Uh, thuggish-looking parking lot attendant out there, and he looks at the guy and he says, any of these young punks try anything with me, I'd break their arms and set them on fire. (laughs) 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 Oh, I'd break their arms and legs and set them on fire, is what he actually said. And uh, Crump says, well, how, how can you say something like that? You know, if somebody's in a a position where they're ostracized by the society and they're forced to steal bread for their children. Would you say that? You know? And then uh, Ghoul looks at him and says, Buddy, if you can't tell the good guys from the bad guys, then you're one of the bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> so that became a famous Chester Ghoul quote. I knew Max Collins, who, and I told him that story. And he later became the writer of Dick Tracy mm-hmm. and spread that tale around so that now, you know, all books on Chester Gould carry that quote. It's kind of um, a defining quote. <laughs> but it's were interesting. You... It's like the comics, the guys that were the most conservative types I think, I don't know if it's true. I, I mentioned it to Dennis. I don't know if he was able to check it out. It's not in his biography of Al Cap. But I think it's true that Al Cap actually sponsored Von Bodie to get into the National Cartoonist Society. Really? So even, even though he was an arch conservative, there's a certain point where you're forgiven for your political beliefs if you can draw well. Yeah. He supported the cross dressing. That's awesome. I'm a big Bode fan. Mm-hmm. Um, were you and Crumb pretty shell shocked after the Gould meeting? No, <laughs> actually, <laughs> I, I I was doing stuff for the Gould was at the Tribune. I was doing stuff uh, stuff for the Chicago Sun Times, so I had to go down there anyway to turn my stuff into the Sun Times. And Crumb went with me, and uh, the Sun-Times was a liberal paper, you know, so their newsroom looks like what you'd think of as a a modern newsroom, you know, all these desks and guys sitting at the desks and stuff. The Tribune is like the conservative, was the conservative paper, and their newsroom looks like the newsroom in the comic strip Smitty, you know, it's all mahogany uh, cubicles that were carved in the 1890s, you know. Um, but anyway, we, when we were at the Tribune, or when we were at the Sun-Times, uh, the Tribune was right across the street. So mm-hmm. Crump said, let's go to the Tribune and visit Chester Gould. So we did. <laughs> also on Chester Gould's office were all these drawings that were there since 1910, you know, by... Opper and Harriman and, you know, 
Sidney Smith, all these old cartoonists that were drawn in pencil on the wall, and they looked like they were drawn there yesterday. And when I did that comic strip with Ed Fisker about when we visited him, I called the Tribune to ask if they were still there. And they said, oh, no, we painted over that years ago. Now we run it to a media company. That's so heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. All that great stuff lost. Yeah. I don't suppose anyone ever got any photos of it. Well, there might be some, but I'd have Gould in his office where you see it in the background, but I don't think anyone ever went there and intentionally focused on it and took high-resolution pics of it. Now, more recently, uh, some of the stuff you've been doing is um, your paintings, which you've been posting on eBay. Yeah, there's one. This is Wednesday night. Yeah. This is live. There's one up there now, and I guess there'll be one up there in a couple more days. But yeah, I've been uh, doing paintings and putting them on eBay. Because it seems to me the printed word is, is uh, you know, it's not what it was. Like in the 70s, Playboy sold 8 million copies a month, and now it's under half a million or something or mad is down to the circulation of mad now is nowhere near what the circulation of zap was in 1968 mm -hmm. no whenever it came out you know. but it's the same with everything printed one of the other things you were telling which I'm really curious about is um, some of your old check stubs and I'm really interested in that market because I guess you had someone wanting to buy it all from you? Not all of it. I, I just put up some mm -hmm. stuff. Um, the one was, I used to be the, uh, Chaka Khan's father he used to be my roommate. Uh, and I put that up. I, um, and I put up some crumb checks and, um, but I also put up all, like, my gas bill payments and stuff, and somebody bought that, so that's good. Yeah, yeah they're, signed, they're signed by me, and then the ones that are to famous people are endorsed by them on the back, and they used to return your checks. The banks used to return your checks. So, you know, somewhere I got checks from Wally Wood, I mean, that I wrote out to Wally Wood that are written endorsed on the back by Wally Wood. Um, what did you publish Wood in? Uh, the Chicago Mirror. Oh, okay. Wood did an early thing called Wits End. Yeah. I guess they're reprinting the Wits End magazines now mm -hmm. as a book. And Art Spiegelman was in there in Grass Green. And this was before Underground Comics, but a lot of people who became Underground Continuous were also in Wits End. Bob Stewart, I think, was in there. And Wood, uh, Bob was one of Wood's assistants, and Ralph Reese was one of Wood's assistants, and, um, and Nicola Cuddy, I guess is his name, who did Moonchild, which was an early Underground Comic, was one of Wood's assistants. Wood was in 
Big Apple comics that Will Steinberg published. Mm-hmm. It's an early underground comic. Um, but Wood did Wit's End, which was, uh, you know, the idea of it was that he wanted to develop the art further than was possible in the code books. So he was an early a precursor of the underground comics. Were you reading Witsend at that time? Yes. We knew of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know how. Well, as you said, Spiegelman was in an issue eventually. Yeah. Um, well, we were still, you know, writing each other, me and Art and Skip and um, a lot of those early guys and I guess I heard about what's in through art or somebody in New York. I don't know. I mean, there wasn't really a fanzine for just specifically that type of thing. Uh, there was Maggie Thompson's uh, comic art. Well, it was called New Fangles in the 60s. And she might have mentioned it in there. Okay. You're kind of keeping track somehow or trying... I, Somehow I didn't miss anything. I knew <laughs> of all this stuff somehow. I don't know how. Even while in Chicago, not being in New York, where it's all happening, or... Um... Well, I'd go to New York. When I was in Chicago, I'd go to New York every six months or so. Oh, okay. Usually to work for shops. I also was reading your uh, your strip about visiting uh, Kim Deitch and uh, Spain and their uh, wonderful apartment. Mm-hmm. The White Album strip. Mm-hmm. <coughs> that was the day that the Beatles' White Album came out, and I was on the subway. I just got there, and Kim and Spain were living in a loft that the East Village other had rented to store their back issues, and they let Kim and Spain live there so that they wouldn't have to worry about rent and be more productive in doing comics for Evo. Um, and it was the day the Beatles album came out, so everybody on the subway, all kinds of people from all walks of life, had a copy of the White Album under their arm that day. They released the White Album. And I went to stay with Kim, uh, Spain, and they lived upstairs in a really bad neighborhood. It was like west of Tompkins Square Park at the time. They called that Needle Park. And uh, they were above these Puerto Rican social clubs. So I go in, and they were like on the eighth floor. And on every floor, there'd be some people in the lobby engaging in more progressively evil vices. On the first floor, they'd be smoking pot. On the second floor, they'd be shooting up. On the third floor, you know, and, and Kim and Spain was on the eighth floor. And when I got there, the door was dug out. The lock had been dug out by someone carved with a knife around the lock. So there's a big hole in the door. Looks through the hole, and Spain is sitting there, looking at the hole, holding a gun. 
And I said, it's me, you know, it's Jay Lynch. And he, he said, you know, come in. And I said, what's with the hole? And he said, well, they carved out the lock, and I can't leave because they'll break in and steal everything, you know. Uh, so I said, okay, well, I'll go out and get the pizza. No, he he had no food there except a, a two-thirds consumed jar of Gatorade, <laughs> I think it was. So I said, well, I'll go out and get a pizza. So then I go out, I get a pizza, and at that time the pizzas in New York came in these traditional uh, white, flat, square boxes. That, there was no printing on them, it was before Pizza Hut or franchises they just came in and you know they uh, unmarked white boxes and I'm coming by the social club and some thugs stop me and say hey hippie what do you got in the box and just without thinking I said it's the new Beatles album you know which was work that day so they laughed and they said hey that's okay man we let you live <laughs> and I went upstairs with the pizza but, you know, that joke would have only worked that day. If I just said it two days later, it would be stale, and I would be dead. <laughs> so I was like, you know, you got to time these things correctly, I think. Um, I've heard other stories <laughs> of that place, and it just sounds horrible. <laughs> just so Flaco and the Jive Cats, they carved out the wall, broke in to steal records, yeah. Yeah. You never had yep, anywhere thanks. quite that bad? Hmm? You never had to live anywhere quite that bad? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Me and uh, Chaka Khan's dad lived in this place that was uh, uh, condemned. In order to get into it, you had to climb up onto the roof because the doors were boarded shut. There was a hot water heater. You'd have to turn it on before you wanted hot water and turn it off after you got hot water. Otherwise, it would explode. It was like from 1900. Oh, Jesus. Um, but Skip, yeah, Skip writes about that place in his book. Uh, that's where we lived when Skip's parents came to claim him after it was known that he wasn't killed. <laughs> and... Uh, they, they couldn't abide climbing up onto the roof to get in. <laughs> they never got inside the place. I think Skip went down to meet him. <laughs> I'm sure the place uh, was just as reassuring about his uh, safety as the not being with the kidnappers anymore. Well, it was cheap. <laughs> <laughs> Now, um, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today, Jay. Ah, okay. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm a big fan of your stuff. Uh, reminder, folks, I've been talking to Jay Lynch, his uh, comics, uh, Nard and Pat, uh, Snarf, and uh, Phoebe, and the Pigeon People, as well as more recently. Well, all that, stuff, all that stuff is out of print. I don't get paid for any of that, but... <laughs> but the you can books? buy the Boogers version of Umtut Sut on Amazon as a single, and you can. Uh, I'll occasionally have stuff on eBay 
paintings on eBay that I painted and put on eBay, and I think there's one on there at this moment, and there'll be one on there next week. But I don't know when this will be broadcast, but you know, you just have to. I'll be posting this in a week. Ah, okay. So on the twenty second, for listeners, um, from Tomb Books, uh, Otto's Orange Day and Otto's Backwards Day. Oh yeah, yeah, I get I get money from those. <laughs> <laughs> Otto's uh, Orange Day, Otto's Backwards Day, and Mo and Joe Fighting Together Forever. The three books for kids. There you go. are comic books that are they're actually phonics books that are thinly disguised as comic books to teach kids how to read. Now, will you be at any comic festivals or events? Yeah, I'll be at the Asbury Park Comic Con and many months from now. Okay. And I'll be at something, the non-sports uh, card show, and uh, it's called a Philly show. It's in Allentown, Pennsylvania. I, I don't know when that is. It's in, I think, March. But, you know, there's information on the web about if you just search for my name plus Philly Con or Philadelphia Con or non-sports something like that. Non-Sports Update magazine is a sponsor of this one of the sponsors of this convention. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jay. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me this evening. Arrived, of course, 
explain how this brother here ain't alive. Yes, sir. The man who sees and doesn't sees it through, he's going to gain notoriety. Yes, sir. It's a wonderful chance for somebody. I agree with you there, but it's got to be somebody else. Yes, sir. Not me.